every teacher tries to make sure that their classroom is conducive to the learning styles of their students. However, that can be difficult when you have so many needs of your students. In today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing a parent, and we are going to be doing part one of a two-part series where we are talking about dyslexia and sharing tips, strategies, and just insight into how, as a teacher, you can better support these students. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Teaching Made Easy podcast, where it's all about simple systems that actually work so you can finally teach and give your students bigger impact in their learning. Teaching is hard, y'all, but what if I told you that sometimes we make it harder than it has to be? I'm Farah, CEO of Farah Henley Education and host of the Teaching Made Easy podcast. I've been an educator for almost 25 years, and to say I've seen a thing or two is an understatement. I know how much you pour your heart and soul into your students and your classroom, and I want to help you find some simple ways to have a bigger impact without breaking the bank or spending all your free time focused on school. You don't have to be a Pinterest teacher to be a great teacher, and that is what this podcast is all about. So grab your favorite beverage, head out on that walk, or just soak the day away in a bubble bath. But sit back and let's enter the world of teaching made easy. What's kicking educational rockstars? Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Farah, aka the Center Fairy, your ultimate source into the wonderful world of simple classroom systems that actually work so you can finally teach. We're so excited that you've joined us here for another week of the Teaching Made Easy podcast. And this week is a good one. I'm going to be interviewing a dear sweet friend, Trina Debery, and I'm going to be interviewing her based on the topic of helping students with dyslexia. Now there's a little bit that I want to share about Trina. She is the brilliant mind behind Trina Debery Teaching and Learning, a blog and website for teachers, as well as One Tired Teacher, a podcast for teachers. She also has a podcast for teacher entrepreneurs called Teacherpreneurs Raise Your Hand. And I encourage you to check the links in the show notes to jump over there and show your support for her. Now I'm interviewing Trina today as a parent. Um, she's an amazing educator, an amazing entrepreneur but I am going to be interviewing her today from the perspective of a parent with regard to uh, tips for teaching students with dyslexia. Now you may be asking, why am I interviewing her as a parent? Well, she has a child who struggles with dyslexia and I wanted to do a two-part series. I not only wanted to share the um, professional side of it, the tips and strategies from a dyslexia expert, but I also wanted to get the parent perspective so that maybe as teachers, we can kind of understand what it's like from the other side so that that can help us in learning maybe how to help our students and communicate better with parents of students we might be teaching that have dyslexia. So I am interviewing her today from the perspective of a parent. And as you will find out, I also discovered that Trina herself has dyslexia. So this was an amazing interview. It is a longer one. So, and I want, I thought about breaking it up, but I'm already doing two separate parts. So we're going to leave it in its whole and in its entirety. So it is a longer one. So put your earbuds in, get you something to drink and sit back and enjoy this interview with Trina Debery. Welcome, Trina. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, before we get started, could you just kind of tell my audience um, how long you've been an educator, uh, what you're doing now? Can you just kind of tell us who you are? I can. Okay. So my name is Trina Debery and I am a content creator for tr from Trina Debery Teaching and Learning. I have a podcast, um, One Tired Teacher. I have been in education since 1997. Oh. I mainly, I know it's a long time. I taught first grade and then second grade for years and years. I was a student support specialist and a media specialist. And so I've had a variety of perspectives in the field of education. And now I've stepped out, but really hoping to support and help teachers get some of their time back and, and like get through some of these things and just do the best they can. My biggest goal is for kids to love to learn. And I know that we have teachers that care about that and want to instill that within all of their students. Well, I think today's episode is definitely going to stay along those lines because um, I've asked Trina here because of our topic 
and talking about um, dyslexia and how as educators we can help students in our classroom. And Trina, you are coming on as to give us the perspective of a parent. Um, I know you're an educator, um, but I'm so excited to get the perspective from a parent because I think it's very important that we not just hear from the experts, but we hear from the other side and we hear from what it's like as the parent dealing with this. So thank you so much for being here today. I knew that this was going to be a very serious topic because I, I listen, I'm on mom talk. I'm on teacher talk. I'm on mm. teacher gram and mom gram and, and all of the socials. And I see how passionate mm -hmm. um, teachers who service these students, as well as moms who have students with uh, dyslexia, you know, how passionate they get and yeah. all of the things that that entails. And so I wanted to be very, very sensitive because it's not something that I, believe it or not, in my 25 years as an educator, have ever had to deal with. Um, I've never had, well, I can't say I've never had a student. I've had st students who we believed had some mm -hmm. form of dyslexia or had mm -hmm. some, you know, was, was dealing with some of that. Um, but it was one of those things that we just got the testing started. So I never actually had students that I was formally teaching with dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And before I go any further, uh, would you mind, and just for my audience, you are going to be helping us today as a parent, mm -hmm. as an educator, but also mm -hmm. as a parent. As a parent. And okay. would you help us and my audience who may not know or really have dealt with this? Mm -hmm. How is it that you refer to your child, to your student? Are they a child with dyslexia or are they a dyslexic child? That's something that I know that comes up a lot. Yeah, so, that's interesting. You know, I I say that he has dyslexia. I don't know if I ever say, I'm sure I say he's dyslexic. I don't really, those two, neither, like, I don't think of it as a bad thing. So okay. it doesn't feel like, like a heavy label. I mean, I am dyslexic. And okay. so myself and my son was diagnosed in first grade. And I will say one thing, like, we actually, even if we don't think we've ever dealt with it in our classroom, yes. we have because it impacts and their research is there's two different schools of thought. And one set of research will say one in five children are in, are impacted. And then one will say one in 10. So no matter what, even if it's one in 10 or one in five, you have someone, at least one, maybe two, possibly four kids in your class that actually fall on some type of dyslexic spectrum, which I do feel like there is a spectrum because I think my daughter also is dyslexic, but she was never identified and she just overcompensated so well until we got to the SAT. And then it was like the time factor was something that she couldn't overcome. And so it was it was difficult. It was, I mean, we were talking about a 4.2 grade point average, top 10% of her class. And she had like an average SAT score and couldn't get into the schools in Florida that really focus on that, unfortunately, which is a whole nother story. But um, so I don't really say, you know, he's dyslexic or he's, he has dyslexia. I guess I say both. I really, that's kind of interchangeable for me. Well, that's interesting. Um, and the reason that comes up, I think, is because I know, for example, in the autism community. Mm -hmm. um, that is very, very much something that comes up with uh, parents and educators and advocates of not labeling the child um, as their disability. And mm -hmm. I can see that. I can see that. But it's interesting to get that perspective as a mom, as, a, as an mm -hmm. educator, but as well as someone who also deals with um, who ha yes, I think that as time well. has gone on, um, and I and I attribute this to you know lots of research and also lots of people that have gone on and been very successful in life. It's not. I don't necessarily look at it as a disability, and um, and I mean I I feel like I I maybe I did as a child. Like I I did. There was a lot of my life where I didn't where I didn't feel smart where I felt dumb, where I felt like it was difficult for me. I had to work really, really hard to, right. um, to get things. And I definitely noticed that with my son. I know that, that it's, it really impacts your self-esteem. But when we start to look at some of the benefits 
of having dyslexia, there is, there are a lot. And now even LinkedIn is recognizing it as something positive. Like you can actually add dyslexic thinking to your profile. So, um, so you can proudly walk around as I, as a divergent person and, and it's, it's okay. You no longer have to feel like, you know, yes, maybe you struggled in the beginning, but you know, you do learn to compensate and, and overcome. It's almost like a rewiring of your brain. I really feel like that because it impacts the language area of your brain. I do feel like there are ways where that you can kind of get around that and build these new, you know, neuron synapses, all that stuff. You can build those things in your brain and you're able to compensate and you're able to, you know, to overcome. Hey there, rock stars. We are going to take a quick break here in the interview just to get a word from one of our sponsors. So let's kind of like expand on that because Mm -hmm. that is interesting. I, you know, there have been many times that I've heard Um, whether it be uh, a learning disability or, you know, a physical disability, Mm -hmm. I've often heard people who deal with that disability refer to it as a benefit. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me different. It doesn't, it's, and and a lot of people I think have even kind of turned it on, you know, turned the tables and said, this Mm -hmm. is not a disability, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is a slippery slope because I do think there needs to be some acknowledgement that there needs to be services for, for sure, because because it is difficult in the beginning, but it really comes down to the fact that you think differently. And, and if we did more of this anyway, in education, if we paid attention to different thinkers and the ways that kids learn differently, we would have a better grasp on this because it truly takes a multi-sensory approach when you are teaching children with dyslexia and that's how they grasp content. So, you know, and so much better. And so if we did that for everyone, Right. We would be reaching so many children. And I always felt like even as an educator, if I could figure these things out, it would help my ELL students as well because because of their language, you know, their uh, you know difficulty with language. And I'm like, this would really make such a huge difference. And it was the teachers that I had that paid attention to that kind of stuff that helped me. And with my son and even my daughter, they did better in classes where they were not just like sitting and getting, it was more hands-on and they were, you know, they had audio um, options or they had, you know, things like that, that made a, made a difference. And also I will say, and I have to um, give a shout out to this book. It's really old and there's probably a revised, but it's called the gift of dyslexia. Uh And um, it completely, helped me see it as a gift. Well, go ahead and show that, show that cover so that the the audience can know which one to look at the gift of dyslexia by Ronald Davis. Okay. We will definitely, I will grab a link. Um, I'm assuming it's probably available off Amazon. I will grab a link and I will share that out, but go ahead and go ahead about the book. Sorry. So no, it really, it just changed the way that I looked at it. And, and also when I was, like I said, I didn't feel very smart. And I know I'm talking about this, like from a personal perspective, and I will talk about it as like a mom as well. But at, from a personal standpoint, I didn't feel like, I mean, I did well in school. The only thing that I really struggled, I mean, I didn't in the beginning, like it was hard for me to learn how to read, but I had a tutor that specialized in dex- dyslexia, which in 1970 something is pretty shocking. And, um, but my grandparents paid a lot of money and my grandmother worked with me every single day. So there were multiple people that were doing things to help me. But once what I always feel like as the light bulb went off, I couldn't get enough of reading. I, and I really feel, and I used to tell my son this, I'm like, you, you, if you're not practicing, if you're not rebuilding those pathways, it will always be difficult. And now I don't feel like I have like, it's not hard for me. I love to read. I read constantly and all the time. Um, so I do feel like that's one thing that does matter. And I, the children that I've seen that have done better, like in school, have been the ones that are constantly reading and reading a lot. And so I think that that, I think that that really does help, but I kind of lost my, um, lost my, tra- oh, so I felt, didn't feel like, you know, like I was very smart. And I remember sitting in college 
and <laughs> the University of South Florida. And I was like taking this child development course and they were talking about dyslexia. And I was like, huh. And they were, and at that time, they really felt like you couldn't even really be labeled if you, if you weren't in the average to above average intelligence range. They're not saying that as much anymore. They're saying it, it, that doesn't really have an impact. But I was like, wait a minute, that must mean that I am smart. And so I went home and I like found the report, like from when I was tested. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, it was just so shocking to see the things that were written about you and like to realize that some of like, I couldn't decode words, but I had outstanding comprehension. They couldn't understand what I was saying, but they, but I could tell them everything about the story and it was insightful, you know? And so I'm like, wow. So it really, even then though, I still, I mean, I went on and did well in college, but it wasn't until I got my master's in 2011 and I experienced this, I learned about Howard Gardner's multiple intelligence theory. And I was like, and the way that they taught was so like optimal for my brain. I had like a 98% average yeah. in my um, graduate, in my graduate program. And I graduated as a salutatorian and I didn't even know what a salutatorian was and, <laughs> until that happened. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm actually, I actually am a little bit smart. So it, it's crazy. So that, that brings up a really good question because, you know, as an educator and as educators, um, you know, well, for us, at least I'm going to say for me, cause I don't want to be insulting to my guest, but <laughs> for me, it's been a while since we went through our teacher training. Um, or I should have, I said our, but anyway, yeah. it's been a while okay. since I went through my teacher training. Um, and I know that that's not real. That is a specialized training and not all teachers get it. No, but like you said, we have probably, what was the statistic again about whether or not we've dealt with it in our classrooms? Oh, one in five or one, one in, in five, one mm -hmm. in 10. Um, that's a high statistic. So thinking that teachers need training in this mm -hmm. because when the average teacher hears dyslexia. Mm -hmm. I would probably venture to say the one thing they think of and probably the only thing they think of reversals. is reversals. Yeah. My students write their numbers backwards. My yep. students writes their letters backwards. And I know, I do know this because um, it was something that I dealt with very early on with a parent who was convinced their child um, was dyslexic and had dyslexia um, because they were a kindergartner who was writing their B's and D's backwards. And I mm -hmm. knew that that was developmental at that point. Mm -hmm. We just need to watch things. And, but that's just like, that's one thing. So yeah. can you kind of explain to the average teacher, if you had to pick five main things, and I know there's probably a laundry list of things, but if you had to pick five main ones that are just probably clear, blatant, you probably need to get, this is probably something going on here even though we would never diagnose our students, what would those five things be? Okay. So if I had to, to say five things, I know it always comes to the reversals. That's not, that's a totally, that's a misconception. Kids do not read. You're not reading it backwards. It's not backwards. You, you may reverse some of those and you might notice that in a student's writing. So if you notice someone that had like a severe issue with spelling, that is often a, like a little bit of a red flag or someone that is they, they're able to explain things in such a way. And you're like, man, this kid is like, they're so bright, but I don't, I'm not seeing this in their written work. Like I'm not, I'm, there's a discrepancy or even kids that get super tired when they're reading, like it's takes a lot of effort or they're inconsistent. One day you're like, oh, wow, they're, they nailed it. And the next day they're, you're like, what are they doing? Are they not, you know, why are they, why they seem like they're being lazy or they're not working hard enough. I just don't understand those right. kinds of signs. You're like, it really is so shocking when someone explained it, and I'll go on like with more things that I've noticed. But one thing that I think is so important, and I watched this on a documentary about dyslexia. Um, and it was a lot, it was a while ago, but it was so interesting to me. Are you there? Yeah. Okay. It yeah. It froze. So I was just checking. Oh, I apologize. So it, okay. If you took two, if you did like an MRI and you had two brain scans in front of you, when they, when they 
like tied everything up and they were like, they had a, a person with dyslexia there. We showed their brain and we said, okay, what's going on? Actually, let's start with the person who is like atypical, ha doesn't have dyslexia, doesn't have anything that we, that is recognizable. So their reading, their language area of their brain is on fire. It is just red and flashing. And it, it's like that part of their brain is, was really working. When you look at a person with dyslexia, when they're reading, that language area is like almost gray, like not a lot of red is happening, but the rest of the brain is firing and red and going crazy. And I'm like, and they're like, so imagine how exhausted a person with dyslexia is because they have to use so much brain power to compensate in order to read the words as opposed to someone who doesn't have dyslexia. I always thought that was so interesting. And I'm like, that makes so much sense. No wonder kids get tired or it's inconsistent. Another thing is like phonemic awareness is really difficult for people with dyslexia. They, they tend to have an issue even with rhyming and like breaking sounds apart, putting sounds back together, that manipulating sounds. It's a little bit, it's more difficult. I noticed with my son when he, when they, when we were so hardcore on the sight words, sight words, sight words. And that's something I noticed too, with people with dyslexia, any word that is visual, like you can imagine it in your mind, like the word play, those are easier words for people to see in their head. Cause I feel like that, that's kind of common, but words like was that doesn't have like a three dimensional sign in your mind. So what I used to do with my son, we would take his action figures and we would like manipulate them to create the, his sight words. And then he'd trace it with his finger. And he, it was easier for him to then see those words three dimensionally so that he, so that he was able to recognize, you know, more and more, but that rote memorization is actually difficult for people with dyslexia. That's why it's harder for them to learn like quick fluent math facts that some tight words or sight words. They, they need like strategies in order to, to learn those things like in a quicker pace. Also like fluency sometimes can be an issue like and there is like I remember reading the art of the slow reader we put so much emphasis on this I'm one crazy. thing and I'm like if it's not affecting your comprehension and it doesn't always like I disagree when people say that you know well the neurological overload and I'm like okay if that is happening then yes then we need to we got to got to help with that but if it isn't happening and they're rereading and that slows us down when we're rereading those are all things to make meaning like we're looking for making meaning and reading we want them to understand what they've read so what is what is the point of timing them if they're getting the information does it impact you on a test when you're a slower reading absolutely you won't have enough time to finish a test but is that all that we care about it feels like it in my state so I understand again yeah. why why people would say that but as we start to move away from that being everything and please let us move away from it yes. eventually yes um, then we, then we're gonna see that that doesn't necessarily have to be the thing that like always holds us back so those are my, might be some things that you notice about your student that the, the one about them being inconsistent is probably the biggest red flag because we often think, that they're being lazy and they're, and they're right. And you know, I, I think it's interesting that you brought up though, something that, uh, and, and for the record, I have never been diagnosed with ADHD. I have never been diagnosed with any form of uh, dyslexia or learning disability, um, formally, um, as I've become an adult and I'm learning about this things, I'm thinking back to my own childhood, kind of like what you were saying, mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you realize things and I think back and I'm going, you know, were there some, some things missed because, um, and I don't necessarily think, I don't specifically think it was dyslexia, but you made a very good point um, to the slow reader. Mm -hmm. So I, like you, did very, very well in school. I always was at the top of my class. I was always a straight A student. I was always getting, you know, even through high school in my darker years, um, you know, where you're, you're off being mm -hmm. a rebel, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I still was Me too. Yep. maintaining high grades, right? So that's why nobody knew that I was being this little rebel because I was still maintaining high grades. Um, but I remember, I, I, I am a slow reader. 
Mm-hmm. You give me something to read. Even to this day, I don't like to, I'm not an avid reader of books. Like mm. people talk, I see the stacks of books that people put and they're like, I read six books this month. And I'm like, mm. ow, I'm like, <laughs> how did you make yourself do that? Um, if it is a book, if it has got to be something I am a hundred percent interested in, first of all. Yeah. But even when I read, I read very slowly and Mm -hmm. I have to read something because I can read a sentence or two sentences and halfway through I've forgotten what I just read and I need to go back and Mm reread. And because of that, I've all, and I know I've known that about myself always, but because of that, um, I've always had kind of a special place in my heart and in my classroom for my kids who were slow readers, Mm -hmm. because I like what you said, it does not affect my comprehension. Yeah. Once I learned, I'm going to have to read it again. Yes. So if you give me a passage and then, and it was even more important. And I think with our slow readers, it was even more important that we really sharpen those comprehension skills yes. of how to go back and find mm-hmm. information. And find information. Absolutely. Because uh, we may have, yeah, you're right. We may, you're not going to be able to hold on to it because of that, because of the time factor as well, which I, I, I also wonder, and I haven't read anything that links to this, but I, I wonder sometimes like visual memory, that's, I'm really weak with visual memory. So, and my son weak with visual memory. So I'm like, there's some, there's some things that I'm like, Ooh, I wonder if that's a dyslexia thing because like when people put up notes on the board, notes down, and you're having kids copy from the board and you're getting frustrated when they, when they're taking so long to do it for me, like I can look at it and like one second later, forget it. I mean, I have to have it side by side that up, down, up, down part is where I like lose because I don't, my memory's so weak. And then remember my principal giving me this this horrible monotonous task when I was a student support specialist. And I tell them that I'm like, you give me the worst thing. And I had to do this whole copy paste thing of these names. And I'm like, I can't remember. It would make me so frustrated. And, and so like I have a weak visual memory. And so I'm, I'm often wondering like, does that happen because you have dyslexia or is that something totally different? But I will say about the ADHD or the ADD thing, it, that also, it's like 12, I just read this statistic recently, 12 to 24% of people with dyslexia are often diagnosed with ADD as well. So, which I didn't even know I had ADD until I was an adult. And um, yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have this too. No wonder I can't concentrate. I definitely have always thought about girls. Yeah. We're girls. So you're right. And I knew it about my son, although while he was getting the dyslexia testing, they said, you know, he, you know, he does have some tendencies, but he can focus. So I don't know if I would categorize them as that, but as life went on, I was like, Oh, I don't know how they said we don't know. Cause Oh yes, for sure. <laughs> he couldn't, can't sit still. Yeah. So uh, he's actually, that's actually gotten better, but it's just interesting how some of these things like go hand in hand. Well, and let, okay. So I want to, I want to respect your time because you are a busy, busy, busy woman. Um, I, I want to make sure that I ask you this question as a parent of a child with dyslexia, because I know you, you, you shared about your experience mm-hmm. in, in the classroom and drawing on that. And then at, from the parent perspective, what are some things you wish your son's teachers had known, had been trained in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wh- just what do you wish they had? How that perspective? I, you okay. know what I'm trying to? I say. do know what you're saying. Um, well, first of all, I'll say personally, it was hard. I felt like school was hard in the beginning, and I felt bad about myself. But watching my son struggling with school was the one of the worst pain experiences I've ever felt. And I wish that they had known. And I would tell them like they knew because you know I worked at the school with them. So, but they don't know, they didn't know a lot about dyslexia, but I would say it if impacts you like socially and emotionally, that's the biggest thing. Like you, you, we have to do a lot of work on building kids' confidence and helping them to see themselves 
as you know as thinkers and learners but they it just looks different for them i wish people had known that i wish that we were doing more multi-sensory activities because he can excel like he's like when you look at multiple intelligence and you look at like body smart he has to move to think so i think if we take those kind of things in consideration also i went to i remember going to his third grade teacher and and basically begging her to take down the data wall. I'm like, can we please stop with this data wall? First of all, this isn't motivating anyone. When you are at the bottom of the data, you know who you are. And that excuse of they don't know who they are, we have to be yeah, honest with ourselves. because we didn't put your names on there. Exactly. Yes, they do. We know they, they are. Exactly and let me, I, what I want to ask people when they say that is, can we put up a data wall of weight loss in our, oh, in our teacher oh, 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 oh. lounge? Yeah. Can we put it up? our financial, you know, bank accounts on the teacher's lounge, is that going to motivate you to make more money seeing that you're at the bottom or lose more weight seeing that no way you're just going to feel like crap about yourself. And every day well, you're going to be reminded. And and it might motivate those who are like at the top that are really close together yes. and they're doing yes. that. But the ones that are down here, yeah. it is not motivating for, mm -hmm. because we know that as adults, I mean, we start those weight loss journeys and if we're like rocking and rolling and losing weight yeah. and, and all that, we're, we're, man, yes, let's go, let's go. But the minute we fall off and we get too far behind, we're like, eh, I'm not going to win anyway. So why? No, because you give up, you shut down you and that's, that's the, and he would do that. He would shut down. He would make excuses. He would have to go to the bathroom on a regular okay. basis because he was avoiding, he wanted to avoid feeling that way about himself. When kids don't feel good about themselves, they don't feel competent. And they are constantly reminded that they are right, that they aren't competent, that they shut down sometimes or they act out. That's when we have behavior issues as well. It's it, they don't feel good about themselves. And we don't even know that that's the thing that that's that's the thing that's hurting them. And they don't have the emotional intelligence no. and the mm -mm. emotional regulation skills to be able to convey what they're feeling. Um. And so, like you said, it often manifests as acting out, as behavior mm -hmm. issues in the classroom. Um, you know, uh, avoidance, when kids that go to the bathroom 25 times a day, they're you know, avoiding. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it, it, it pains me to say this, but I think it's important that when we know that we made mistakes, that we admit we own our mistakes, we own up. So if you are a teacher listening to this and you're thinking about students in the past who you are thinking, you're hearing some of this stuff and you're going, man, I remember this student and ooh, I didn't handle that situation very well. I think it's very important to recognize that we all as teachers make mistakes. Oh, yes. And I know that in my career in the classroom, there were plenty of times, and I am so embarrassed to admit this, but at the same time, we need to. There were plenty of times where students were just labeled as behavior kids yeah. that I can now look back on after learning things that I probably should have known from the, like, this is training as teachers need as a requisite. Absolutely. As a requisite. Absolutely. No, there, we, we have let kids down, not on purpose. I remember when I listened yeah. to the to the occupational therapist talk to me about sensory issues that sometimes yeah. are, go hand in hand with dyslexia or just in general. And I'm like, holy mackerel, I've had kids that have had sensory issues and I had no idea. I did. Yeah. I, and I and I feel terrible. And I think and even when she was talking, I'm like, wait a minute, this is true for me. I have this issue. <laughs> and it's so it's like. It, you know, you don't know. And it's not like, and I really feel like your OT is like an untapped resource in schools. They know so much about so many different things. And we, they're, we're never, we never give them not, not us, but well, admin, whoever never yeah. gives them like the floor to be, to like train us, teach us, tell us some things that we could do kids that actually their hand is hurting during writing. I used to think that was not true, even though that is me. Or they're just being lazy. They don't want to, they don't want to write. They don't want to write. And I'm like, no, their hand actually does hurt. They don't, they're not gripping the pencil correctly. There's yeah. there. And I'm like, I didn't know that for years. It was probably, I was like 15 years into teaching. And when I read this, this book about it and I'm like, Oh, this is actually a thing. They weren't yeah. just making this up. Their, their hand actually hurts. Yeah. So, well, and I think that comes just, that just, 
speaks volumes to the pressure that teachers are already feeling in the classroom. Cause I know, um, my audience, uh, they're, 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 I've got some blunt teachers in my audience. I get emails all the time, but they, they're, they're great. We love our community here at FAG. Um, but they are so stressed. There's so much put on them already in the classroom. And, um, it's not that they wouldn't, they won't use those resources like an OT. Um, it's, it's just, there's so much pressure put on yeah. this stinking test that yes. they, uh, listen, we all, we know it. We try, we have this idea that we're going to start the school year off. And this year, it's not going to be about the test this yeah. year. I'm going to teach my students. I'm going to do what's best for my students. And trust me by, you might make it to Christmas. You yeah. might make it to Christmas break, but it's going to turn into being about the test because unfortunately that's what the pressure, that's where the pressure is put on us, especially yeah. if you're in those tested grades. Now, if you're in grades K through uh, K through two, two which yeah. are in Texas are not state tested grades, there are still tests that are done yep. even in those grades mm -hmm. because they want to make sure that when they get to they're, third they're grade, prepared. That they're, that they're yeah. prepared. Yeah. So um, I don't want to forget about those grades that aren't necessarily state tested grades. Uh, but I do think it's important that we make sure that we are advocates for our students. And sometimes that comes at the expense of our own. Mm -hmm. um, what's the word I'm looking for, Trina? Um, our own accomplishments. Because, mm -hmm. you know, being teacher of the year is all great and wonderful. Or being recognized because you had the highest test scores is all great and mm -hmm. wonderful. And being, but if a child slipped through the cracks in your classroom with something that you should have caught as a teacher, but it mm -hmm. was passed off as bad behavior or it was passed off as a lazy student or it was mm -hmm. passed off as it was passed off, which is common passed off as these parents. It's yeah. the parenting. I'm not saying I'm just going to go ahead and say this right now. I'm yeah. not saying that there aren't some issues that we're dealing with in our classrooms that aren't related to parenting. Okay. Yeah. We know this. Um, but I think it's very important that as teachers, we take a step back and we try to bring in as many people as possible to evaluate situations before we pass things off as bad behavior, laziness, mm -hmm. whatever it is, because then students like you slip through the cracks and mm -hmm. don't get the help they needed when they were in school. Yeah. So for your son, um, what were, as a parent, what, and, and I want you to, to share this as a parent mm -hmm. for teachers so that that parent teacher communication can, can, can develop in a very respectful mm -hmm. and supportive way as a parent, when you went to your son's teachers, mm -hmm. um, what were was it automatically accepted with, with like, received? no, it's not because well, in my state oh, of Florida, we don't even recognize dyslexia. So they're like, well, Excuse that doesn't even repeat that. Yeah, I know. Texas is really, really good about that, but Florida is not. Yes. They don't even recognize it. I had to fight to get my son a 504 and I started at a 504 and was like, okay, if, if I need to go to an IEP, I will. I mean, I had to pay over a thousand dollars to have him tested for dyslexia just so I could have, I did outside testing. I did not go through the school system. And honestly, Farah, you know, I know we can't diagnose students. I get really annoyed by that because yeah. I often had my pediatrician telling me that my, that I needed to get my son unhooked on phonics. Why are they giving me educational advice um, as a doctor? So I'm not, as a teacher, I think I can say, these are the things that I've noticed. These are the things that I'm seeing. I'm not saying your child has ADD or dyslexia or whatever. I'm just saying, these are the things that I notice as a professional. Now, I am not going to tell you that I didn't tell parents that I thought their child was dyslexic. Oh, absolutely. I did. Too. I, I'm like yeah. mom to mom. This is what I'm seeing. This is what happened it, to me. This is what I realized with my son. It is hereditary. Is anyone, does anyone in your family have dyslexia? One of my students, his, her dad had dyslexia. He was a genius scientist who had passed away. 
this child was seven. This was my second grader. She um, was brilliant in so many ways, but she struggled with the uh, breaking the code of, of the written yeah. word. And I'm like, I'm just going to tell you, this is what I think. And she got tested. Yep. She had dyslexia. I went with her in when she was in third grade, I wasn't even her teacher anymore. I went to the to the meeting in order to get accommodations for her as a like a backup because I'm like, yep, this is these are the things that I noticed in the classroom. And I'm like, this is the only way that you're going to get accommodations for your kids as a parent is fighting for those things like 504 and IEPs. And people are like, I don't want to label my child. Well, you know what? I want my kid to have a level playing field. They, he needs extra time. He needs to be able to read this out loud to himself in a hall or in a small room by himself so that he can process and understand. You can't do that in, you know, in, in the regular setting. And I'm like, you have to have these things in place just so it's even a little bit fair for them. So those are the things yeah. that I fought for. I did have some excellent he had some excellent teachers that learned more. They educated themselves. We had conversations. And then, you know, of course, there were times that he didn't. I mean, I remember even in sixth grade having to come and have a meeting with a guidance counselor and all of his sixth grade teachers. And they were like, give me the research. Give me the information. I want to know how I can help him. It was wonderful. It was a great yeah. experience. But, you know, you don't always find that. And, and, and. Well, and I think too, as an educator, and you know this, Trina, because I like you, I have to admit that there weren't times that I didn't tell tell parents, you know, I really think you should think about talking to his pediatrician about mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. because I'm seeing and not not just him, because of my girls, I had to do it with some of my female mm -hmm. students too. But um, it all comes down to funding. You know, and that's yeah. what it all comes down to is as teachers, we're told you're not allowed to diagnose. Yeah. Okay. I'm, a, I, I'm allowed as a human being and as an yes. educator and as a professional to share my to observations, share my observations and mm -hmm. what I see going on and what my opinion is as to what this possibly could be. But it all comes down to funding because the minute we do that, then mm -hmm. schools are required to provide the testing and they don't want to pay for the testing. And quite frankly, if you're so worried about your test scores and you're mm -hmm. so worried about your attendance rates exactly. and you're so worried about your <laughs> you know, behavior issues and you're so worried about all this, well, I tell you what, paying for the testing yeah. might eliminate all of your worries about all of that stuff to begin with. And I'm sure that there are plenty of educators out there that would gladly give up their teacher coffee machine in the workroom to pay mm -hmm. for a testing for one of their students. And I'm not saying that the coffee machine is the, is, yes. is they're not cheap tests. They don't have you to get rid of the saying. coffee machine, but yes, I do know I, what you mean. Yeah. I know that there are teachers that would gladly think about the fact that, you know, Hey, we're not going to be able to provide these things because we are going to put that money into testing for our students. And I don't know a teacher worth her weight that wouldn't be willing to do that. Yes, so absolutely. Um, now I will say, um, and this is kind of one of the last questions that I have for you today. Okay. Um, I have recently seen on TikTok and I cannot remember the teacher's name, but I am going to make sure I tag it in <laughs> the descriptions, show notes and all of that. Um, there is a teacher who shares her school and I don't remember where her school is, but they have a um, sensory room for students. Oh, and, yeah. um, it is absolutely freaking amazing. Um, but it is there for students to come through to throughout the day and they don't have to necessarily have gotten in trouble in the classroom. Uh -huh. If they're just in the classroom, they need a place to go. Yeah. They need a break. So this got me to thinking. Yeah. We had that at my last school and it was, um, called the engine room. The it was engine awesome. room. It was so awesome. And yes, it and really helped a lot of kids. I wish it was something that was required in all schools because yes. they actually have turned their, their teacher lounge into one as well. Kind of a calm down space for teachers mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. she oh. talked a lot about how yes. as teachers, we have trauma. Yes. I mean, and I can attest to this, having had a student that had um, a disability um, for, for privacy reasons, I won't say what, but there were massive outbursts having to clear the classroom. Mm -hmm. There were there. And this was a, daily occurrence yeah. in my classroom um for the first semester of school and I had to advocate so hard to get what was needed um which was ridiculous but 
that's traumatic. Yes. That, that is traumatizing it to is. a teacher and, and teachers need spaces. But what about the other kids? What yeah. about the other kids in the classroom? They've just experienced that too. So this idea of um, a room is just, I think it should be mandatory in all schools. Yeah, I no, just, I agree. I do. Yeah. But that was not my question. I apologize. I kind of went down a rabbit hole because it's so awesome. But my question is specifically for teachers in their classrooms, what would you as a parent like to see in the classroom for your son? Because I know, I don't think parents who have students with um, accommodations or disabilities, I don't think they walk around thinking my child is special. You must do blah, 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 no. blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are things that they wish teachers would try to provide like the calm down space, or yes. if they can't do it on a school level, mm -hmm. try to do something like that in your classroom. If you were talking to a teacher right now, who was saying a new teacher who was like, I want my classroom to be as close to perfect mm. for any of my students who have disabilities or potential disabilities. Cause I don't yeah. always know. Cause I don't know. Mm -hmm. They haven't been diagnosed yet. What would you tell them as a parent? Well, I definitely would say, a, a, you know, cool down corner. I think those spaces are essential in classrooms. And I, I also think talking to our kids about how we think and that metacognitive piece, I actually think that goes really far with kids, even little ones. I mean, my kids used to be able to tell me, you know, we, I, we would call it like our smarts, like I'm people smart, I'm math smart, I'm, you know, they'd be able to say that. And they would be I'm working on being music smart, or that's what challenge for me, but I'm trying to stretch myself, we would have these conversations, so that they could understand that everybody doesn't think the same. I mean, there's a book called I think it's called I'm dyslexic, dyslexic, or I have dyslexia, something like that. And we and we would read that we would talk about that. We would talk about these different we'd talk about the benefits of some of these things as well. This makes me able to do, you know, I'm able to see things that are going to happen before they happen. And, um, and there, I mean, that feels like a superpower sometimes. Yeah. So we would talk about things like that so that they would understand all like empathy. I, you want to, you want to build that culture in your classroom where we're empathetic with someone that is struggling with something. And I think those things are so important to have in classrooms and also like allow kids to, do, to not have to do it all the same. Give them some more choices. They can show what they know in a different way. If they're struggling to write it down, could they do an audio recording or like a podcast episode? Could they create a video? Could they, you know, there's other ways to show what they know. And the whole multi-sensory thing is so important, especially with kids with dyslexia. And they, and some kids, they need to move. I used to have, if my kid needed to stand, not my own child, but my student needed to mm -hmm. stand, I didn't put her in the front of the room because then she would be blocking people. I just moved the desk back and she could stand as much as she wanted to. And, yeah. and I'm like, you got you, just being more flexible with, with, with knowing that not everyone thinks the same and it's then for some people conformity or like being in that one way is really difficult. It feels like torture for some kids. So really understanding that, I think, I think that can make a huge difference. I think that that's extremely important. And I want, um, I, I want the audience to hear that because that just made me, wow. When you said it is, it feels like torture to the student. And I don't think any teacher would mm -hmm. ever want their student to feel that way. Um, definitely not intentionally, but even no. unintentionally. And I think it's very important for us as educators to hear that, that um, as a student, we're there, our students are not just being lazy. They're not being, you know, defiant their, their frustrations may manifest in some behaviors that look like that. Mm -hmm. But when you think about what they are feeling, their lack of emotional intelligence to regulate what they're feeling, I think, and, and to hear it feels like torture. And I think that's important for us to remember. Um, I know that if I was in the classroom right now, um, I probably would put that on a sticky note and put it on my computer. It feels like torture. 
because I would think I would want that constant reminder every day to mm -hmm. remember that for students that are dealing with these issues, it feels like torture. Well, Trina, wow. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, I, we are going to do this in two parts. So I asked Trina to join us today to give the perspective from a parent, but also having been an educator. Um, and I did not know when I asked you that you also, um, have deal, deal with this in your own life. So I did mm -hmm. not know that. So that was just a bonus to, uh, <laughs> having that perspective as well. Um, we do have a dyslexia expert, um, coming on who is an educator and has all the trainings and, yeah. uh, she is going to be coming on to hopefully in May. So I hate that we're having to do, um, a separated <laughs> episode, but it is a two-part series. Yeah. So I'm excited to have her on, um, but she wasn't available to do anything until May. And, uh, but I think this is extremely important information to get out to mm -hmm. my audience and to teachers all over. So thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate it. Um, and I hope that you will listen in May and then yes. In the groups and things like that, when um, it gets shared on, I would love to. I'm shared. I'm excited about that. I think yeah. that's I think that's so important and so necessary. And I am appreciative, as a teacher, as a, as a parent, as a person with dyslexia. So, <laughs> thank yeah. you. Well, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, Trina. Now, if you're looking for more tips, strategies, and simple systems to take back into your classroom to make your teacher life easier, check out the other episodes here on the podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thank. Thanks for listening. Keep being an educational rock star. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can find all the links mentioned in today's episode by clicking the link in the description to jump over to the show notes. I know your time is valuable as a teacher, and I am honored that you chose to spend a piece of it with me. Help other teachers like you find the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get notified when new episodes are available. Thanks again for listening, and most importantly, keep being educational rock stars.